Our second reading this morning is also a psalm. And I would like you to listen as I read it for a tonal shift that happens about halfway through. The first 16 verses or so, the psalmist rails against those people and all the wickedness they do, and he is upset with people following these unfit leaders. Then something happens, and the last 16 or so verses, he has a different tone and outlook. And I wonder if you can figure out how and what and when this happens. Also, the psalmist refers to God as you and to God's people as the circle of your children. So with that bit of information, let us listen to Psalm 73. Truly God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain, their bodies are sound and sleek, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not plagued like other people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues range over the earth. Therefore the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Such are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and am punished every morning. If I had said... I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Let us pray. God, speak through us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts 
Be open and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in seminary, I was an intern at Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church in Yonkers, New York. Yonkers is the first like, true suburb of New York City, and I was in a very humble church. It was a small building that could probably hold 120 if you really crammed them in. And if everyone in this congregation came to worship, and I mean everyone, like they brought the husbands and the brothers that only come for special occasions, we would have about 45 people. Typically, there were somewhere between 30 and 35. And there was one baby and one family that had was grandparents and a young boy, fifth or sixth grade. And I had met this young boy at the summer prior to working with them at the camp. And I cannot recall the exact circumstances, but the interim pastor decided that we would invite the entire church to go to New York City after worship and tour the Episcopal Cathedral, St. John the Divine. St. John the Divine is a huge cathedral. It's one of my favorite places of worship. And it is also pictured on the front of your bulletin. Most of us have probably been in a cathedral, and can you think back to that time, a time when you walked in and looked up, and there was a lot to look up to. There was a lot of space. What I will never forget is this little 10 or 12-year-old boy walked into that cathedral, looked up, and his mouth came down, and he said to me, Diana, I feel really small. And I smiled and I said, I think that's the point. Sanctuaries can come in all shapes and sizes, and they reflect the culture around them or perhaps the culture that preceded and birthed them. And within sanctuaries are worships, services of all lengths and sizes, utilizing all types of manners of music, theology, words, silence, dance, Every part of our existence can, and perhaps should, be used to respond to God's love with gratitude and thanksgiving. God gives, and we respond. The basic premise of a sanctuary, or any worship space, is to remind us that God is God and we are not. We are small in comparison. And I think, if we're honest, we all need that reminder. Worship, hopefully, points towards God and helps us to practice remembering who we are and whose we are, and is an act of gratitude, of thanksgiving for all that we have been given. In the words of John Bell, who is no relation, but he is a respected music and worship leader from the Iona Christian community in Scotland, and he says that worship leaders are not the performers, and the congregation is the audience, as we heard a little bit earlier, but rather we are the performers, and God is the audience. And so when we consider that maybe worship is not a performance, nor is it entertainment, as some of our youth have speculated, then it seems to me that our time together each Sunday morning has a specific purpose. It is a spiritual discipline, a way of marking time in ourselves, and a way that hopefully brings us closer to being in lockstep with the mystery we call God. 
Now, as Joanne and I discussed on this chancel about a month ago, during our conversational sermon, I have some questions about whether or not I want to go and have a beer with Jesus. And I can't get that out of my head because it seems to me that when we're talking about the holy, when we're talking about Jesus, people don't stay the same once they encounter it. If you think about the scriptures, people meet Jesus and some of them are healed. But it also means they have to go back and do new things and live a new life. No more sitting by the roadside and begging. Now the blind man sees and has to go and tell the world of his experience. He might need to get new shelter and a new job. It's not an easy task. And those that are not healed when they come into the divine mystery are challenged to see themselves and the world around them differently. The disciples tend to not get it very easily, but those of us who are in other parts of the stories, other, other characters, know that this isn't easy either. The rich man wants to get into heaven. He's asked to sell everything and follow me. Ouch. Go and sin no more. Easier said than done. Someone wants your jacket. Give him your sweater too. Turn your cheek. Jesus is not a bringer of the status quo. Which reminds me of one of those phrases that I love and don't like living into, which is, God loves us too much to let us stay the same. And that, my friends, is a great reason not to come to worship or be a part of a church. Because change seems to be part of this path. And to walk this path, we need to practice. And traditionally, we gather for congregational worship as one of, if not the way, we practice. Wood Children's Worship Resource gives a pitch for worship that goes like this. The basic underpinnings of Christian worship include statements or ideas that we want every child to be able to express. I love you, and I am loved. I'm sorry. Thank you. I have gifts to use in my community. When children participate in prayers of confession, when they sing hymns of praise, when they hear words from the Bible read aloud, they are learning something about what the community values and what can and does shape their lives of faith. And this reminds me of a pattern in my work as your associate pastor. Almost every fall, I receive a note from a parent of a young teenager who's not a part of our community. And the request goes something like this. Do you have a program I can enroll my youth in that will teach him or her to be a responsible, moral, and ethical person in about six weeks? <laughs> and I go, hmm, six weeks, huh? How about six years, or six times six years, or 60 years? Yes, I respond, come to worship. Come and participate in the ways we are living into God's love. Because love changes us, and when we put it into practice, excuse me, love changes us, and here is where we try to figure out how to put it into practice. There is no six-week curriculum. We are about the long haul. No six weeks can replace living the questions, living the spiritual faith, and bumping elbows with so many about how our God is or is not or might be working in our midst. 
It takes a village, and it changes throughout one's lifetime. Welcome to the Christian journey. We practice responding to God's love and to life's challenges with love. Welcome to the sanctuary, a place set apart, a place to help us practice loving. Our text today is Psalm 73. Have many of you heard that one before? It's relatively new to me, and I find that it is a wonderful account. The psalmist, or the author of the psalm, proclaims as to what has happened in his life, how his life has been transformed by his encounter with God in the sanctuary. Perhaps you noticed the shift as I read. In the first half of the psalm, he describes his fury with the ills of the society he's living in. Hear his words again, starting with verse 4. For the arrogant have no pain, their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not plagued like other people. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues range over the earth. Therefore the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. Thousands of years after these words were written, I hear America in 2016, don't you? I feel like I know this guy and I would be his friend on Facebook. And perhaps that is because we both follow God and want the world to reflect God's compassion and justice. We love the world too much to let it stay the same. The psalmist goes on, and here I will quote from the message, a paraphrase that puts the scripture into modern language. They are full of hot air, loudmouths disturbing the peace, and people actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches, and I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. Again, I feel like I kind of know the psalmist. But then the psalmist goes into the sanctuary of God. And he has some sort of encounter with the living God, and his tone changes dramatically. He is changed. He says, Then I saw the whole picture. The slippery rod you the slippery road you God have put them, the wicked, on, with a final crash in a ditch of delusions. And he goes on, as we heard, to call their pathways one of nightmares and nothingness. He has compassion and perhaps a touch of pity for those same people who, just a few lines before, he was calling out with sharp words. But God has reoriented his heart. Now, it seems clear to me that the psalmist has not changed his perspective of what is and what is not appropriate. He re still rejects the culture of violence, greed, envy, and abuse of power that he has described. He is no longer, yet, he is no longer following down the road of resentment or defeatism. He's no longer demonizing the demonizers. His perspective shifts, and rather than complain, 
he now recognizes that he was behaving badly too. And he goes in a new direction. In other words, he confesses and repents, to use some worship language. And with one affirmation after the next, the psalmist seems to let go of his anger and resentment and becomes deeply compassionate and recommitted to his own values. He turns back to God, and he reaffirms his desire to walk in the ways of God as opposed to the ways of the wicked. His heart is wide open and healed and embracing. He has been transformed. And while we don't know the rest of the story, we can imagine that his life and every life he touches, family, friends, co-workers, people at church, people he runs into on the streets, his attitude and outlook will be noticeably different. Not because his life is great and there is no wickedness in the world. That is not part of the song. But because he's facing himself and living from a place of love and compassion. Verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is now what centers him. Not his anger, not his fear. And what happens between him and God? What happened in the sanctuary that made this reversal possible? We will never know for sure. This psalm is descriptive of his living experience. It's not a description or a prescription for how to find the right moment or the best sanctuary or the magic words of prayer. But we do know from our own lived experience that God shows up again and again, constantly. And sometimes we are able to hear God more clearly than other times. For instance, one man who is African-American and worships as an Episcopal church described his experience meeting God in the sanctuary like this. One time, I was embroiled in a sticky relational conflict with a brother in Christ. I was absolutely convinced I was right and that he was completely wrong. Then I came to church. And during the first song, we were invited to, quote, humble yourself before the Lord. The next psalm proclaimed that God graciously forgives sinners such as I. Needless to say, he writes, I was immediately convicted of my pride and arrogance and realized that my stubbornness was preventing reconciliation. The next morning, he sought his friend, apologized, and made amends. He was transformed. He went from right and wrong to relationship, and his life took a new turn. His friend's life took a turn. Now, there are so many stories to tell of people being transformed in sanctuaries. Sanctuaries, of course, can be anywhere. They do not have to be buildings, but they can be. And there are books and websites dedicated to proclaiming God's transformational love of what happens when we are together. There are stories that this church shares and holds onto and tells. Perhaps you know of some of those stories. Perhaps you have been transformed in this space yourself. I am really interested in hearing your stories about worship changing your heart rather than just telling you some that I have heard. 
And I wonder what it would be like if we were to take Psalm 73 as an example and to consider a time when there was a conflict or a concern in our lives, a heaviness, a frustration, and then an aha moment where something shifted and you came away changed. Perhaps it was a profound experience. Perhaps it was incremental or subtle. Perhaps it happened over time. But I wonder what that story or stories might be for you. So why worship? Well, why not? Why not take a risk that the power of God might show up in such a way that we might find ourselves changed? I can only imagine that we have experienced them and we do have these stories because we keep showing up. And that's good because I think we have to practice. We have to practice showing up and listening for and responding to God's grace. For the Christian mission, in some sense, is to grow in gratitude and service to transform the world. And that takes practice. Love is a practice. Love known or considered is a pretty idea. Sounds good. But living into it, loving ourselves and our neighbor, that's where it gets a little messy and takes a little work. But God's love, we know, can and will transform us. We are a jumble of experiences. And may we come together to listen, to be changed, and to be renewed together. So why not worship? Why not practice being in the midst of a community whose main goal is to celebrate God and give thanks? I can think of a no better use of my resources. God's love transforms. And may we be bold enough to let God move our hearts. And may we celebrate our stories and grow with one another. Amen and amen.